great pleasure to be here. I have followed the doings and the concerns of reform uh, from afar for quite some time. And it was a very happy providence, I think, that you were having your conference just at the time when I was already committed to be in England and could be with you. Thank you for your invitation and for your fellowship. Now, I've headed the notes that I have for my two talks, The Problem of Pluralism, and the title for this first presentation is The Great Plan. It might have been the big picture. It might have been simply the purpose of God, for that, in fact, is what it's about. As the first address in this conference, it's what uh, my side of the Atlantic uh, would be called the keynote address, that is, the address which uh, establishes a viewpoint and a perspective for the conference as a whole, um, an address that suggests guidelines and parameters, limits and uh, goals for our thinking. Um, this is what keynotes, keynote addresses are supposed to do, and this is what I shall attempt to do with regard to pluralism. This uh, question-raising uh, term, which um, I have been asked to center on in what I say to you. And I'm going to work in this presentation from Colossians. You know, I guess, that Colossians was evoked from Paul by news that in Colossae uh, some people were supposing that it was necessary to worship angels and add special rites and ceremonies in that connection over and above the plain, straightforward Christian worship of Christ. And that clearly fired the apostle up, and he wrote this magnificent letter. It's amazing how much he gets into its four chapters. It's on the sufficiency and the preeminence of our Lord Jesus Christ, and much of it simply glows with the emphasis that Paul is putting into his presentation of that fact. Colossians, as we know, is one of a pair. Colossians and Ephesians in some way belong together. Far and away the most natural view is that when Paul had finished Colossians uh, to go to a church in Asia Minor, um, he realized that he'd been saying things specifically angled to the problem at Colossae, which in a more general way he would like to say to all the churches of Asia Minor, further perhaps. And so he went on from Colossians to write Ephesians as a circular to those churches. Uh, you will remember, I expect, from the days when you studied Ephesians in college that there are strong arguments for believing that it began as a circular letter and that it is, in fact, the letter which the Colossians are told to secure from Laodicea, 
they are to get and read the letter that's gone to Laodicea, and the Laodiceans are to be given Colossians and told that they must take that to heart also. And I've never forgotten the happy pair of headings that I've learned, well, when I was an undergraduate, actually, um, for binding the two letters together, the theme of Colossians, a head for the body, and the theme of Ephesians, a body for the head. I think those two headings express wonderfully well how these two letters supplement, complement, and uh, enrich each other. Uh, no more about Ephesians now in this presentation of mine, but uh, I wanted to say that because I do think it's important. And then when I give you my second address, I've given it the title Christian Faith and Other Faiths. That's the title of a book by Stephen Neal, which seems to me extraordinarily wise in this area. And we shall be working from Paul's address to the Athenians in Acts 17. Uh, the Athenians were pluralists also, as we shall see. And it's very striking how Paul interfaces with them and uh, seeks to bring them to a better mind than they had before they heard him speak. And may I say, as a kind of... Uh, what we used to call a trailer, um, a hint, shall I say, of what's coming, that I do intend in the second half of that second address to say something specific about liberal pluralism uh, within the Anglican Communion and with particular reference to the blessing of same-sex unions which has recently been legislated in my diocese, the Diocese of New Westminster, Canada, uh, in a way that has caused a major explosion and the end is not yet. I hope, incidentally, that in the course of the conference I may give a factual report on some of the things that have happened in New, New Westminster. I think you need to know it. But... Uh, Leave that until we get there. Now, I have three headings to which I'm going to speak. Um, as a sometime philosopher, I start with a definition, and my first heading is the meaning of pluralism. Let's be clear on what it is that we're talking about. Uh, second heading, and this is the one where Colossians is going to help us most, the meaning of Christianity. And then the third heading, when we've surveyed pluralism, what it is, and Christianity, what it is, then I'll talk for a moment. It won't take very long to say what I have to say under this third heading, so it only will be a moment, about the meaning, the meeting, sorry, the meeting of Christianity and pluralism. And I shall give you some perspectival thoughts about that. But begin at the beginning. Heading one, the meaning of pluralism. We hear the word often. What does it signify? Well, generically, it's a modern Western ideology 
An ideology is an idea cast into the form of a program which people are invited to support and try to implement. Marxism was an ideology, and pluralism today in our society is an ideology. The ideology has been developed out of the fact of plurality. These words are not quite synonyms, you see. The fact of plurality in, well, just about every department of community life, politics, sociology, morals, and religion. Plurality declares what is. There are a whole series of parallel positions, each um, jostling, I think that's fair, for more leadership than the others have, even if, in courtesy, they don't want to rule the other uh, positions entirely out. But each position wants to lead, to lead the rest. Out of that reality of, pl of plurality has developed the ideology of pluralism. Pluralism can be analyzed in terms of the four following propositions. One, there is only one ultimate value, and that is freedom. The freedom of the individual to be himself and not to be put under any form of constraint by anyone else. Pluralism is an ideology of rights, guaranteeing freedoms. We in Canada suffer from a declaration of rights and freedoms, which is actually a great burden to our community life, but let that go. Um, this is the idea behind pluralism. Freedom, of course, is a Janus-faced word. It has two angles. Some people, when they say freedom, are only thinking of freedom from particular inhibiting and restraining evils. Like, um, well, I'm an old man, so I, I remember this. Perhaps some of you will also remember it. In the Second World War, uh, President Roosevelt declared that we are fighting for four freedoms. Freedom from poverty, freedom from hunger, freedom from fear, and freedom of religion, if I remember right. But as Christians, what we ought to be saying is that important as freedom from restrictions and restraints may be, what is really important when you think about freedom is to see that freedom is... Uh, a biblical word for a state of fulfillment, contentment, joy, a sense of having arrived, a sense of being in a place where one wouldn't change one's position for all the tea in China. That's freedom as the Christian ideal, and it has directly to do with a personal relation to the Father through the Son. Not everybody who talks about freedom discerns that, but that's the Christian understanding of the essence of the freedom for which Christ sets us free, and we need to keep that in mind as we go along. So, 
Principle number one, there is only one ultimate value, and that's freedom. Principle two, there is only one task for those in church. Call them the government. Um, uh, it may be the government in the state. It may be the government in the church. It may be the government in some large institution. But the one task is the same task, namely to maximize and safeguard freedom for everybody through such patterns as cooperation, of cooperation as will have that effect. And nobody should be restricted or restrained in anything unless it is going to um, obstruct other people's rights and freedoms. Um, as in the old story, you know, about the Irishman who uh, emigrated to America and uh, got off the boat onto uh, American land and was so thrilled at having come to America, the land of the free, that he started uh, singing about it and shouting about it and waving his arms and so on. And not looking what he was doing, he hit a policeman on the nose. And the policeman said to him, Sir, you must learn that your freedom stops where my nose starts. <laughs> and, and that's a principle in um, uh, government in a pluralistic society. Everybody's rights and freedoms have to be safeguarded. But third principle, the government is to be neutral as to truth. The business of the government is to keep people harmoniously together and to practice and inculcate tolerance of every point of view. This is the way of the secular state. It has no commitment in terms of truth. And then fourth, you can see what follows from what's been said. Egocentricity, at least in secular pluralism, will be the community ideal. It's everyone for himself. In Christianity, of course, we have to, we have to reckon, we joyfully reckon with the fact that the gospel individualizes. Everyone is called to face God for himself, herself, and to make his or her own decisions, and no one can do it for you. So the gospel heightens personal individuality, personal responsiveness to what confronts you, personal responsibility for the life you live in all sorts of ways. And that's right, and that's good, and that's part of our humanness. But I'm trying at the moment to define pluralism in the broad generic sense that the word uh, carries today in which it's much more than a particular religious attitude. It's a community attitude with uh, any number of political and social implications. And of course if you're thinking now in terms of the secular community, well egocentricity will be a very unlovely thing, but in terms of secular pluralism, egocentricity will be the community ideal. Everyone for himself. Sauve qui peut, as the French say. Well, 
What do you think of that? That's pluralism. And when you get into um, the uh, special world where people with a Christian background are picking up on pluralism because it's the in thing, which it is, and Britain, I guarantee, will have a great deal more of it uh, in the future than you've had yet, just as Canada is going to have more of it than we've had yet. Um, now, in this, in the circle, in relation to the larger community, of course, it's uh, a circle near the margin, it's not a very large circle, but it's a circle in which people with a Christian background believe that they must take pluralism on board, and they are trying to articulate it, and they articulate it in terms of um, two beliefs. One is a general view of religions, namely that they're all friends. They're all, some way or other, roads up the same mountain. Uh, they can all, one way or another, help each other along. So some form of syncretism, uh, what I call Irish stew religion, you know, where what is seen as the best in the various religions is all put into the same pot and boiled together. Uh, syncretism is what you're likely to get, right, left, and center. And the second conviction that goes with this in um, religious pluralist circles uh, is a general view of salvation, a view which bears no relation to empirical fact, let that be said emphatically at the start, but the conviction which these people hold on to in defiance of the facts is that all religions are on the same quest, that the salvation that they all seek is essentially the same salvation, that they're all aiming at the same goal. And having said that, a lot of these modern Christian pluralists segue into universalism and they celebrate what they understand as the grace of God which through Jesus Christ is going to save absolutely everybody. And you've met that view, I'm sure. Um, it's common enough in the church today. You can see that these pluralists um, start as liberals, so they wouldn't be saying these things at all. Well, yes, they do. And when I get on to liberalism in my second address, I should be saying more about this and the Christian, about the Christian attitude to other religions. But I want now to just, I want you, or I want you now, as we start our explorations, to notice that this is the way that the liberal pluralist mind works. And I want you also to be aware that there are two tap roots uh, for their thinking, keeping their minds going, suggesting to them thoughts along this line. One is a conviction which they believe they have from God that the source of wisdom is outside the historic church and outside historic orthodoxy. The world has the wisdom on key points, and the church has to play catch-up. 
uh, has, in other words, to keep taking into its system and um, making corresponding adjustments in its own, in the shape of its own message, so that it keeps current, keeps up to date with what the thought leaders in the circular community are saying. The world has the wisdom. That's uh, basic conviction number one. And basic conviction number two is that spirituality, so-called, is entirely good, but it's a matter of exploring oneself and the depths of one's own being in God. Uh, Yes, because with pluralist thinking, ordinarily there goes what we call in the trade immanentism, that is a very strong stress that everybody lives in God and God is in everybody. And uh, so one's personal life is lived in God, whether one acknowledges God or not. Um, and uh, spirituality, which is applauded by the liberals, is understood in these terms. You explore yourself in God, understanding the phrase in God the way I've just said, uh, rather than spirituality being a matter of relating to God in a direct, personal way. Okay, that's pluralism. And that's all I propose to say about it at the moment. But now against that background, I want to say quite a bit about the meaning of Christianity. Yes, I'm offering you something of a definition here, and I believe that I need to do that because in discussion with the pluralists, very often we make it hard for ourselves by not saying anything like enough. Christianity is a view of God, of the world, of everything and everybody. And we have to bear that in mind and realize that to bear the total testimony is part of the task of preaching the gospel. We have behind us well over a century of narrowing down the gospel to just two or three simple truths which we try to teach everybody, but teaching them out of context, as too often we do, Uh, we allow people to relativize those truths by putting them into an alien context of which they themselves supply. Uh, Just as sometimes has happened to um, missionaries in uh, the Hindu world who started straight in talking about Jesus Christ and the salvation he brings and were later mortified to discover that the Hindus, who appeared to be uh, lapping all this up, were putting Jesus Christ into their pantheon of whatever it was, three million gods who are there already, and here's another one. So now it's three million and one. Well, I want to stress the range of the gospel, which, in terms of which Christianity is to be defined, and of which, like the Apostle Paul before us, you and I are stewards. So let me say, Christianity is a responsive knowledge of God and the world and ourselves, uh, 
which has a double claim at its heart. Claim one is a claim to truth, which here means reality in itself, and then reality correctly reported so that we may know about it. You say, how does that truth come to us? Surely we all of us know the answer. It comes through the revelation of God by word, God has spoken, by event, God has acted, and by record, God has given us a record of what he has been up to. God has prompted something like 40, over 40 writers to produce uh, written declarations of the, wor the works and the, plan and the will and plan of God. We have it in the scriptures. So this, uh, we, can, we can say the second and consequent source of the knowledge of truth is the interpretation of the Bible. The revelation of God in the record is a reality, just as the record of God in the history, uh, sorry, just as the revelation of God in the history is a fact, fact of the past, and now the interpretation of the Bible gives us the truth that God wants us to have. You note the way I put it. Usually, I know, evangelicals say the Bible. The Bible, the Bible only is the religion of Protestants, as uh, Chillingworth said in the 17th century. But in these days, when so many people make the Bible into a nose of wax, you know, they uh, select and they twist and they produce any number of strange ideas, and so we found them, found them in the Bible, uh, you, you've got to say something more. So I say, truth comes through the interpreting of the Bible, the right interpreting of the Bible. What nowadays, at least my side of the Atlantic, we call the canonical interpreting of the Bible. Canonical is a name for the old style of interpretation, which was labeled the un interpretation according to the analogy of Scripture. You know that old phrase? It means that you let the Bible throw light on the Bible. You interpret the Bible from within. You don't impose anything on the Bible. You simply allow what's there in the text to come out, and you allow Scripture to illuminate and supplement Scripture, and you do it on the assumption, right the way through, that the contents of Holy Scripture are totally coherent in themselves because they all come from a single mind, that is, the mind of the God who inspired the Bible, just as in, in the writings of C.S. Lewis, you know, uh, 50 books on any number of different subjects. But there's no internal inconsistency because it all comes from a single mind. Or G.K. Chesterton or anyone who's written in a number of different styles. But um, single mind, so a single truth. So a coherent interpretation, and Article 20 actually says this. It's not lawful for the church so to expound one 
scripture uh, as to contradict another. Yeah. The right interpretation of the Bible, interpretation that comes from letting scripture expound scripture, gives us the truth of the, revealed by God. Uh, the scripture itself, of course, insists that human thoughts about God, thoughts introduced that you would introduce with phrases like, I like to think, they're never right, because what fallen human beings like to think about God is always twisted one way or another. So, the evangelical way is to take the Bible with total seriousness as the written truth of God, and if it runs contrary to what I or anybody else likes to think, well, we stand with the Bible against what we and others have liked to think up to this point. So that's the first Christian claim. It's a very radical, categorical, thoroughgoing claim. It's a claim of truth. And the second Christian claim, equally radical and categorical, is the claim that Jesus Christ is central to the plan of God in every particular start to finish. Jesus is at the heart of everything that God has done, that God is doing now, and that he will do in the future. In creation, in providence, in grace as we know it now, and in the reconstruction of the universe that's going to be, our Lord Jesus is at the heart of things. And that's the great truth which Colossians is uh, concerned to declare to us. Um, some time ago, I had to speak at a meeting about the content of the gospel. And I summarized the content of the gospel in six propositions and I'd like you to hear those propositions before we go any further. When you've heard them, I will then confirm them from Colossians. All right? There are key words here, six key words. The first is God. The second is ourselves. The third is kingdom. The fourth is salvation. The fifth is fellowship. And the sixth is heaven. And my thesis here is that we haven't fully proclaimed the gospel till we've covered all six. How did I write them out? Well, like this. One, the truth about God. The one God who made and rules everything is revealed as three persons through his plan of salvation. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love us and work together to save us from sin and make us holy. Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, is Lord over all the powers of evil as he is over all other created powers. And any other view of God is idolatry. Two, the truth about ourselves, second keyword. We were made for God made to bear his image and to be like him in moral character. 
But sin controls and spoils us so that we need to be brought back to God to be forgiven and remade. Jesus Christ who brings us back is himself the model of true godliness. Any other view of Jesus or of ourselves is deception. Three, the story of God's kingdom. This is the uh, narrative dimension, the historical dimension of biblical revelation of which theology this last 30 years has made so much. Step by step, as step as scripture tells us, God has been working to establish his kingdom in this fallen world. God has exercised his kingship, shall I say, in establishing his kingdom. Jesus Christ is now the king, and our lives are to be his kingdom. King Jesus is also the judge, and those who have not bowed to his kingship here will not share his joy hereafter. <coughs> Trusting, loving, and honoring Jesus, and serving others for his sake, is true godliness at its heart. Any other form of religion is error. Fourth paragraph, the way of salvation. Salvation, the fourth key word. Jesus Christ, our sin-bearer on the cross, now from his throne reaches out to rescue us who are lost in the guilt and shame of sin. He calls for faith, trust in him as saviour, and repentance, turning to him as master. He sends his Holy Spirit to change us inwardly so that we hear his call as addressed to us personally and respond wholeheartedly to it. Thereupon we are forgiven and accepted, justified. We are received as God's children, adopted. We are made to rejoice at our peace with God, assurance. And we are made to realize that now we are living a new life in Christ. Regeneration. Any other view of salvation is deficient. Fifth paragraph, key word fellowship. The life of fellowship is the heading. Christians belong in the church, the family of God. Sharing its worship, work, witness and warfare and enjoying its worldwide brotherhood in Christ. Any other view of the Christian calling is sectarian. And sixth point, heading, walking home to heaven. Helped by the ministry of the church, ministry in the church of word and sacrament, prayer and pastoral care, spiritual gifts and loving support, Christians live in our constantly hostile world as travelers, heading for a glorious destination. Led and inspired by their Savior through the Holy Spirit, they seek to do all the good they can as they go, and to battle all forms of evil that they meet. Any lesser view of the Christian life is worldly. Well, is that saying more than Colossians says? Why no? Let's now quickly confirm that. One, the 
truth about God. Colossians tells us God has a plan. This is the mystery, Greek mysterion. It's the word signifies a divine secret now revealed, not known save by revelation. Um, you get the word in 126 and 27 where Paul speaks of the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints to whom God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you the hope of glory. And the mystery of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, is referred to in chapter 2, verse 3. And uh, in chapter 4, verse 3, Paul asks them to pray that God will open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, the whole thing. That I may make it clear, says Paul, which is how I ought to speak. And at this plan, sorry, and of this plan, Christ is at the center. And this is the great theme, of course, of chapter one, which was read to us before I began to speak. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 13 say that explicitly. And it's a a declaration which implies co-equal deity with the Father. There isn't any doubt about that. And the Father's plan is that, as you see in the latter words of verse 18, in everything he might be preeminent. And in verse 16, uh, with prepositions working overtime to convey good theology, we read, by him, my English Standard Version from which I'm uh, reading, uh, do I think it the best of the versions? Yes, I do, actually. We'll talk about that another time. Uh, The English Standard Version has a footnote here and says, that is, by means of him. Yes, it's the instrumental N in Greek, meaning by his means. By his means, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him, dia with a genitive, and for him, ice with the accusative. All things created through him and for him. Everything is finally to make for his glory. And that's how it's going to be when heaven becomes reality for us all. And he is before all things, Paul continues. He was there eternally. And in him all things hold together. The beginning of the doctrine of providence is that the cosmos hangs together in Christ. Apart from his active upholding action, well, there just wouldn't be uh, a cosmos. There wouldn't be a high Lee. There wouldn't be a you and a me. We, we would simply vanish into nothing. But the Lord upholds us in being. 
And uh, everything holds together. All the cosmic order, which uh, modern technologists have mastered so skillfully and harnessed so, uh, how can I say, so um, unimaginatively in most cases, uh, all of that is the good order which is sustained by Jesus Christ, the Son's order, the Father's order, God's order. That's the kind of world we live in. Everything is held together by Jesus our Lord. And uh, then, verse 18, first half, he is the head of the body, the church. Indeed he is. That in, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Um, that word firstborn here means first of a series, which is a perfectly appropriate meaning for it. Some people have stumbled over the fact that um, uh, in verse 15, Paul has already described the Son as the firstborn of all creation. That was where the Arians um, tripped and nosedived. They thought that that also must mean that Jesus was the firstborn of a series, and so he was the top creature, but not God. Well, Paul, like you and me, is at liberty to use words with slightly different meanings when the flow of thought in the context makes it perfectly clear what's going on. And that's what you've got here. So don't let us stumble as they stumbled. Um, Paul elaborates, verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Son is all that the Father is. And it pleased God through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Uh, and that includes your reconciliation, says Paul. Back to that in just a moment. Well, all these things are said in order to celebrate the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ the Lord, who has total dominion in the realms both of creation and of redemption, the world of the church, as you see, and is totally adequate as savior, that's the great evangelical point which he's going to go on to make very shortly. So, there you have confirmation of um, what I said in my first thesis, uh, where I spoke of the truth about God. And yes, um, I did say there, didn't I, that God is revealed as triune, tripersonal, through the outworking of the plan of salvation, and so indeed he is, because the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, is working with the Father and the Son, and his work is just referred to in passing, only in passing because this isn't the central theme of Colossians, but it's there in passing in uh, verse, verses uh, 8 and 9 of chapter 1. Uh, Epaphras has made known to Paul um, your love in the Spirit. Yes, you're living a new life in the Spirit. 
which expresses itself in a love that wasn't there before. And so says Paul, verse 9, Since that day I haven't ceased to pray for you, asking that you'll be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Whenever you meet the word spiritual in the New Testament, and in this be it said, the New Testament is very different from modern talk, Whenever you meet the word spiritual in the New Testament, it always signifies the same thing, coming from the Holy Spirit, becoming reality through the Holy Spirit, something that can never be apart from the Holy Spirit. Uh, The doctrine of the Trinity is in solution, if I may put it that way, all the way through the New Testament just as uh, sugar is in solution in the tea and the coffee that some of us drink. But it's there. And uh, no one must be allowed to get away with saying that it isn't there. Actually, there are enough explicit statements about the Trinity in the New Testament to show that it's there. But every exposition of the plan of salvation anywhere in the New Testament, if you look at it, it turns out to be triune in its, for, in its substance. mustn't go into that in detail, but it is something that is certain and demonstrable, and we mustn't allow anyone ever to uh, suggest that it's dubious. Then my second proposition had to do with the truth about ourselves. Well, yes... Um, In Romans 1 at length, and in Colossians 1 very briefly, and in Colossians 3 as well, a bit more fully, Paul does refer to how we were in our natural condition. Once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. 121. Put to death what is earthly in you, verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 7. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. At the level of principle and probably practice too, that's what we were all doing, says Paul. That's the life we were living. We were made in God's image in terms of our powers for God's image in terms of our life quality, our holiness. But we've lapsed from holiness, and our powers are naturally misused, twisted into egocentricity of one form or another, which is ungodly, and it's from that that we have to be redeemed. I spoke of the kingdom, the history of the kingdom, as the third uh, truth that makes up the gospel. Well, yeah, Paul speaks of it too. In one thirteen, Christ has delivered. Uh, sorry, the Father has delivered us from the kingdom of dar- the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. He has set up His kingdom. Jesus Christ is Lord in it. And in chapter 4.11, you've got a reference to uh, Jesus called Justice and some others 
the men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Well, there it is. Um, I won't stay on it, for time is going to beat me, I fear. Uh, on forth quickly to salvation. Now, though salvation, the way of salvation was my heading, I remember, though salvation isn't a Colossians word, nothing hangs on that, the reality of salvation is being expounded in Colossians in terms of two wonders. One, its relational aspect, and second, its transformational aspect. And the way it's expounded glows as richly as any such passages of exposition anywhere in Paul's letters. The one aspect of the matter is the relational aspect Total reconciliation. Total reconciliation which cancels our guilt, which sets us in a relation of adoption to God, which makes us friends when before we were enemies. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, Paul spoke of it, you remember, in uh, verses... Um, 20 and then 22 in the first chapter which we read together and he speaks of it again explaining pictured in most explicit terms um, to get the flow let's uh, let's go back um, well no middle of verse 13 God made us alive together with Christ having free this is where it starts this is the, uh, uh, the, the, the relational aspect of the matter being dealt with. God, having, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? Verse 14. By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Cancelling, in other words, the guilt which the law, as God's revealed standard, uh, had uh, declared and assessed as being ours. God cancelled all of that. How could he do it? Next sentence tells us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now that's said so briefly that I think a lot of people read it and read on and they don't appreciate what an overwhelmingly vivid picture that is. But now look here. If you and I had stood with Mary and some of the other, some of the apostles, uh, in front of Christ's cross as He hung there, dying, we would have seen, uh, nailed up above His head, the notice, the placard. It's usually called because it was a placard, uh, declaring the crime for which this person was being put to death. And you remember what uh, the placard said in this instance. Um, uh, Pilate wrote it, or wrote it either in person or by, through his um, uh, through his amanuensis in Hebrew and Latin and Greek. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. This man is being put to death because he's uh, a revolutionary. He's a political pretender. He's disrupting society. 
the only thing to do with him is to put him out of the way. He's a rebel. Get rid of him. But then, that's what we would have seen. If, however, as of now, sitting in this room, by faith, with the eye of faith, you look at the cross, what you see on that placard is not what Pilate wrote. What you see on that placard placard is the whole wretched tally of your own sins. I see the tally of mine, you see the tally of yours. He took out of the way the guilt assessed by the law and nailed it to the cross. That's the picture. And the Savior suffered there as our substitute, paying the penalty that was due to us according to what the eye of faith sees of the placard. And thus, reconciliation with our offended God, our holy God, whose holiness we'd outraged over and over by the things we'd said and thought and done, is appeased, and peace replaces hostility. And then there's a second aspect to the um, salvation of which... Scripture speaks, Colossians speaks, I was speaking. That's the transformational aspect, which Paul actually introduces first, because if you look at chapter 2, verse 10, you see him saying, uh, you have been, oh, sorry, start at verse 9, in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled Obviously, this was a sort of buzzword in Colossae. Being filled, having everything. In Christ, says Paul, you have been filled. In him who is the head of all rule and authority. In whom you've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Putting off by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is the circumcision of Christ? Uh, well, it's described in the next verse. Buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. It's a very compressed statement. Paul has a marvelous gift of compression, which again sometimes trips people up. But if you uh, go carefully through what he says, everything becomes clear. Faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead is the human side of the divine work of uniting us with Christ in his death so that the old life we were living before ends and in his resurrection so that we are born again into a new life lived with a new energy, namely with the, what shall I say, with the disposition of our Lord Jesus Christ as the driving reality in what the scripture calls our heart. We are given a new heart. What does that mean? It means that we find in ourselves a desire that never was there before, 
a desire to love and serve and honor and thank and obey and celebrate and exalt the Father and the Son. And that desire drives us for the rest of our days in this world. This is God restoring his own image in us. According, as Paul says in Colossians 3 and verse um, 10, according to the image of the Creator. We put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. That's transformation from the inside. That's the real inside story of the real Christian life. This is the dominant desire and drive of every real believer as long as life lasts. Well, that's the circumcision of Christ. That's the new heart. That's the entry into the new life. And this is the other side of salvation. Total reconciliation through penal substitution, that's the one side. Total renovation through vital union, is the other side. Of course, it's the Holy Spirit who effects the union and by his indwelling sustains the union and uh, is Christ's agent in energizing us to act out the desires which our new nature, which the renewal of our nature has wrought in. Uh, And Paul deals with that in... uh, verses 9 to 13 of chapter 2, as I said, and he speaks of it again very briefly in chapter 3, verse 3, when he says, You, you believers, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then the fifth proposition I offered you had to do with fellowship. It is integral to the Christian message that God is creating a new society of which each of us, to which each of us belongs. It is integral to the Christian message that we are to live that out in fellowship together. And the church, the assembly, that's what the word ecclesia means in uh, Greek use, the assembly, that is the togetherness of those who are in fellowship with each other, that's to be the milia of personal Christian living uh, as long as life lasts. And Paul talks in terms of the fellowship, you'll notice in chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, where he's calling the Colossians to all sorts of fellowship virtues, virtues to be shown in our fellowship in which we share with each other and seek to enrich each other and gratefully to receive enrichment from each other. Well, can't say more about that. Sixth point in my summary was uh, walking home to heaven as a key theme of the gospel. I think that we evangelicals have been largely betrayed, you know, this last hundred years and more, we have seen the world very concerned about various sorts of benefits to be received and enjoyed now, and we have spent all our strength t- 
talking about the benefits that Christians receive and enjoy now. And we've made so much of it that we haven't made of heaven what the New Testament makes of heaven. Heaven is home. Heaven is the supreme joy, the supreme fulfillment, the supreme glory. Colossians makes that plain. Um, we pray for you, said Paul in chapter 1, verse uh, 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, the hope of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. And uh, in chapter 1, verse 27, the mystery was crystallized, the plan was crystallized in the phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Glory. I wish I had time to expound it. I don't. I've had my time and I must stop. But um, if we neglect the theme of heaven, friends, we are missing something which is integral to the gospel as the New Testament expounds it. This world isn't home. Heaven is. This world is a place of opposition and warfare. That world, that state, that place, that fellowship is a place of total fulfillment and total joy. Never forget it. Well, this is the meaning of Christianity, that we believe these things and we say these things and we keep these things in mind when people are presenting lesser views of what Christianity is all about. And uh, we say so. We say it straight. Um, we don't allow our Christianity to become sectarian. We don't allow it to become worldly. We don't allow it to drift away from Jesus Christ. No. This is the Christianity which opposes pluralism. And now, my very quick remarks as I wind down. The meeting of Christianity and pluralism, yes, it's a meeting that brings confusion for two reasons. I said that uh, the attempt to take pluralism on board in some form or other, religious pluralism, uh, is um, being made by liberal theologians. Well, liberals came out of Christianity and uh, their pluralism has grown from Christian roots. They pick up uh, such concepts as the value of the individual, the concern we must have for the rights of others, the importance of tolerance of different views in church as well as in the secular community. And um, these, of course, are Christian virtues in their place and biblically defined. But um, these folk extrapolate. And so this is one reason why there's confusion about pluralism. There are streaks of Christianity in it as well as streaks of something very different. Uh, the, the second reason why there's confusion as we encounter religious pluralism in the churches, it's because pluralism 
regularly expresses Christian doubts and uncertainties such as liberal principles of procedure always create. You doubt the Bible, you doubt orthodoxy, you doubt what the Bible says about human destiny, and so there's confusion. But a lot of people in our churches today are in a state of what the psychologists call cognitive dissonance, in which they are trying to hold on to historic Christianity, and they're also trying to come to terms with some form of pluralism, and the two won't mix any more than oil and water will mix. But they are trying to blend them, and the result is confusion. You can't ride two horses, friends. You really can't. And if you're going to ride the gospel horse, you will not find any room for pluralism, and that's the second thing. There's confusion about pluralism. There must be conflict as we seek to counter pluralism. Pluralism negates Christianity. It's man-centered. It uh, enshrines autonomy, the principle that uh, we make up our own mind for ourselves uh, about everything we're going to believe and do. That, of course, is the first principle of original sin, as we see from Genesis chapter 3. That's what Adam did. Pluralism is anti-revelation in the Christian sense. The finality of God's word is gone. And it's against the, um, the idea of sin, sin in our nature, needing so that we need to be recreated. No, um, pluralism ordinarily works with the idea that uh, of the goodness of human beings uh, deep down, and what we have to do is to try and bring it out. And pluralism always ends up by dethroning Jesus Christ from some or all of the positions of preeminence that Paul gives him in Colossians. And what are we to say? The conflict must be maintained because it's God's conflict. This is one of the battles of the Lord. Pluralism in all its forms must be challenged and argued against and courteously but firmly resisted. Christ is preeminent. Everything is through him and for him. Christ is the conqueror and world conquest by the Son of God when he returns is going to be the end of the road for this world. We know that. We are on the victory side. Under the pressure of pluralism, I think... Uh, some evangelicals uh, and certainly many Roman Catholics are finding themselves re-energized for battle. I hope, friends, that all of us are among the number finding ourselves re-energized for battle against the pluralist mistakes. And that's the presentation. I'm sorry that I overran a bit, but uh, that's what I wanted to share with you. God, give us confidence in the gospel and its truth. God, give us proper discernment 
of the error of pluralism and all the relativistic thinking that goes with it. God, keep us faithful. God, make us strong. And God, may God in his mercy grant us something of real victory as we strive for his truth and his salvation and his son and his glory in these days. Amen.